What I like to say is that the riskiest bet right now is to assume we go back to pre-COVID trend growth, right? Because after everything we've been through, it seems highly unlikely to me. But if you look at the economic models, that's where they all go, because that's what they're all built on. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Ezra Greenberg, a partner in our Stanford, Connecticut office. He's talking about the economic outlook for 2023 and beyond. Today, we'll discuss how to interpret the many, sometimes conflicting, macroeconomic signals out there, and how to build resilience to prepare your business for a range of possible scenarios. We have with us today three of the authors of a recent report titled, 2023, A Testing Year. Will the macro scenario range widen or narrow? This was a collaboration with our risk and resilience practice. Ezra leads our work on macro scenarios and trends globally, and he's also the co-leader of our strategic transformation services in North America. Ezra, welcome. Thank you, Sean. Joining Ezra today is Michael Bershon, a senior partner based in our London office and the global co-leader of our strategy and corporate finance practice. He also serves on the McKinsey Global Institute Council. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Sean. Great to be with you. And finally, Ida Christensen is a senior partner in our New York office and the global co-leader of our risk and resilience practice. Ida, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sean. All right, let's get started. Michael, what led you and your colleagues to take this deep look at the prospects for the economy? Oh, well, super. If we look at the, the world at the moment, what sort of motivated us to, to, to go deep into the economic scenarios is I think it is an unusual period of volatility. Right? We've got uh, new shocks layered on top of old shocks, layered on top of our existing disruptive trends that we've been all been wrestling with. So whether that's inflation and consumer confidence layered on top of still some of the debt overhangs from COVID, layered on top of all the disruptive trends that, of course, as business and wider leaders, uh, we've been wrestling with over the last few years in digital sustainability uh, and other topics. And when we live in areas of volatility, then an insights edge is valuable because if we all know basically what's going to happen, uh, it's fine. But if we don't, being 10% more right 10% more often can be a real advantage. And so across our strategy in corporate finance uh, and risk and resilience practices, Ida and I and colleagues came together with Ezra and our, our economics team to say, look, what might happen next? Uh, and so what we'll go through is what we've seen in the rearview mirror, but more to inform what might happen uh, in 2023 uh, and beyond uh, and how volatile could it get? Sounds great, Michael. And Ida, how do you see that connect with your work around risk and resilience? So we live, as Michael mentioned, it's a very, very interesting time. I was at an event last week and there was a debate about whether 23 was going to be like a year like no other or just a very unusual year and anyway, but we're having those kinds of conversations about what is the degree of disruption from, from the world as we know it. And I think the kind of conversations I have with my clients is really around, look, we are increasingly living in a world where the known unknowns are increasing. We are saying we can no longer say, oh, let's see what happens and then we'll react. This is really about how do we build in a fundamentally greater degree of resilience in companies and in honestly, personal leadership such that when things happen, 
there's a much greater ability to adopt, both in terms of protect companies, but also very importantly, to make sure that we can take advantage of the opportunities that also are created in uncertainty and really get to that strategic edge that Michael was talking about. Thank you, Ida. So let's get into some specifics that this research reveal. Ezra, why don't you start us off uh, with your perspectives on inflation and the impact that it's having on consumer behavior, since that's one of the high profile factors that's been undergoing some significant shifts. Thank you. As Michael said, the, the reason to look back a little bit is just to ground ourselves in, in looking forward. There are still some disagreement or uncertainty about how we got to where we got to. We have peaked in inflation. That is no longer increasing. It's been some time that that's true. So we like to say the acceleration of inflation is behind us. That doesn't mean we're at a good place yet in terms of the level, but we were turned a corner in terms of the acceleration. Uh, and that's true both in the US and also a little bit less extent in Europe because of the uncertainty in energy prices, but largely true as well. The second thing that we have to look at, and this is very different across the world, is, is wages. And you know the headline wages, as we see in the US uh, and the UK, for example, have been increasing at you know, two to three times the rates that we saw previous to COVID. Um, there's a very uh, uh, clear reason for that. And that, um, and I'll take the US as an example. In the US, literally 21 million people lost their jobs between March and April of 2020. Uh, and that created an enormous shock to the labor market, which we're still dealing with the repercussions with. Uh, I have, I've actually found it kind of interesting why people think that the labor market would just kind of come back to what it was before. I like to say that the labor market is a supply chain with feelings, right? It just doesn't going to, it's just not going to pounce back. The UK is uh, didn't take quite a big a hit as the as the US and the labor market because of the structure there. And then you can see a very stark difference between Italy, Germany, and the rest of continental Europe where, where regulations and how things work are very, very much different. And so there was much less of an initial shock, um, but also uh, we need to realize that in continental Europe, the way wage negotiations happen in the lands and contracts, we are likely to see wage pressure in the 2023, 2024 coming. It's just going to take a little bit of time. So the point of disagreement you mentioned is, I assume, about the reasons for high inflation. What, what do you see as the main causes? So there's lots of great stories out there about money printing and government subsidies and all sorts of stuff. It, it actually is a bit simpler than that. We've had a bunch of inflation above what we would normally have expected. So so what is the cause of that? So the first bit is the direct impact on consumers um, from commodity prices and supply chain. So this is, I'm paying more for gasoline, I'm paying more at the food, uh, and I'm paying more for used cars because of all the supply chain uh, problems that have happened. That was the direct impact on consumer prices. Now, as we all know, as business leaders, those impacts hit businesses as well. And so as businesses then move to, to pass those uh, price increases along uh, as best they could to protect margins, that's two thirds is, is the simple explanation of we've had these shocks. These shocks have created disturbances, both direct and indirect, and they've been passed on. The, the remaining third is a combination of everything else. So it is some degree of monetary policy, some degree of savings by the better off who are now spending it's some degree of subsidies that have been going on variously uh, in the United States. And all of those have added up to put additional demand pressure, which shows up in wages. So if you want to think about where it came from, and I, I'm going through this because I like to tell, when I talk to my clients, that we need to put this behind us. It, it doesn't mean inflation has gone away, but let's stop debating what happened. We know what happened. Uh, and, and then let's move forward and talk about kind of solutions. 
Sounds good. We're all hearing news of large layoffs. Initially, they were concentrated in the tech sector, but it's spread beyond that now. How do how do those layoffs factor into the wage picture, and how long does it take for them to impact the inflation numbers? Many months, unfortunately. And even though those headline numbers are are are, are very big, and they're all companies that we all know and love and follow. We also in the U.S. had 500,000 new jobs, uh, net new jobs created in the last month. So the labor market in the U.S., as, as we'll discuss uh, in, in the in the scenarios, is in the sights of the Federal Reserve because that is now where inflation has moved to. It's all about wage pressure, which are finally building through because the shocks have now worked their way through the system. And so that's why the, the Federal Reserve and to a certain extent, the ECB, but clearly the Bank of England are all very much focused on the labor market. Until they can get the labor market to something they feel comfortable with, they're going to keep on the front foot. So where does all this leave us with consumer confidence? Uh, listen, consumers hate inflation, period. It's that simple. As long as inflation is around, consumers are going to be in a really bad mood. It doesn't make a difference what's happening to their income. Uh, and this is true both in the U.S. and in Europe, we're at levels of confidence, which we haven't seen since the financial crisis. There, there is a belief that the, the central bank's going to do the right thing here on control inflation in the long term, which is very good news for us. It's just a question of how long does it take us to get there. And Ezra, I'll just underscore that consumer confidence point, right? Some extent that the the number of different shocks that have hit consumers, right, has created a uh, I mean, I think we probably all feel it, right? Just a just a nervousness that sometimes can be more so than the data, right? But it is it is that the psychological overhang, right? So, how much impact has the ongoing war in Ukraine had on inflation and consumer confidence as compared to prior events, including the pandemic? So, if we were to rewind back to uh, January of 2021. You would have said uh, your friend and colleague here, Ezra Greenberg, would have been telling you that the acceleration of inflation is behind us, because it was. Uh, and then we had the invasion of Ukraine, uh, uh, which put another massive shock into the system. So we ran the same play all over again, right? So uh, it's particularly important uh, in in Europe uh, because of the direct that it's so close to the impact on the energy prices, and you know. We did get a little bit lucky with weather this year, as everyone knows. Uh, as we go into 2023, 2024, there's still a lot of uncertainty on energy prices. So it is a major, it is a major impact with the the most intense concentric circle right around Europe, and then kind of moving out as you go further across the world. So as you said, inflation's rate of increase has dropped off, but the price and wage spikes over the past two years are still with us. How long do you think it's going to take those levels to come back to normal, or are they here to stay? Well, I mean, the short answer to the question is yes, uh, but there's a couple of different pieces to that puzzle. The, the first is commodity prices, you know, for food and energy. They go up and down. They always go up and down. There's nothing going to stop them from going up and down in the future. But for everything else, prices are sticky, uh, and they don't go back down. So I can say with, you know, 99% confidence that, for example, wages never fall in the US, the UK, and Western Europe. They just don't. So if you're a company that has uh, seen a massive increase in your entry-level wage, you're not getting that back. You know, We are going to be in this environment where thinking about margins uh, and how to deal with that is going to be really important, even if we stop the rate of change and rate of increase. And so I like to say that the 
the focus here for all businesses needs to be on frontline productivity. When I say productivity, I don't mean cost cutting. And I certainly don't mean laying off workers because we can't find the people that we need. Right? So, okay, so you, you got the people that you have. You can't find the people that you need. Uh, but you have to figure out a way to be more productive. And the only way to do that is through frontline productivity. And so that's good old-fashioned management. It's automation. It's processes. It's all of these things which we do on a day-to-day basis. And the, and the companies that get that part right are going to be able to maintain the margins in this higher cost level environment, right? Uh, and that's going to be the focus. Got it. So, Ida, in terms of risks, are the issues that Ezra just ran us through at the top of your clients' minds, or do other themes, uh, or are you seeing other themes taking priority? So, it's fair to say that the the risk register has not getting any simpler over the last couple of years, right? And so, if I think about the kind of conversations we had. The macroeconomic environment is clearly, you know, very, very, very important. And that has a number of implications, right? The direct infl- in, you know, inflation impact. The consumer point we talked about is incredibly important, right? So as companies are trying to figure out what's, what's in, in store in the future, consumer confidence, consumer behavior obviously drives a lot of that. So regardless of whether you are a financial services company trying to figure out, you know, watching consumer behavior on employment rates, default rates, and watching that very closely, versus your consumer retail company and, and buying buying behaviors is very important. Watching that very carefully and, and what could happen is is, is, is clearly one and, and, and includes a lot of risk. Uh, but the fun doesn't stop there, right? If you're trying to navigate the environment we're in. And so the other themes that are really high on this geopolitical uh, risk and what's happening in Europe, tensions around China and Taiwan is something folks are really uh, looking at. And we are hearing more and more uh, companies and executives say, we need to have dedicated resources focusing on geopolitical uh, risks, you know, particularly for multinationals, but even for folks that particularly operate in one region because the implications of geopolitical really go so far. So that that's another big one that I, that I say we're talking increasingly about. And I'll mention two more, right? Cyber is one that only increases its importance. I'd say, you know, three, four years ago, we would have conversations with CISOs, heads of technology um, about about cyber. That would be 80% of our conversations. That's really shifted now. And we are having CEOs, boards increasingly saying this is a top priority for them to understand, to manage because of the implications that can has on operations on uh, con- you know, consumer privacy, data protection, all of those things. And then lastly, and we talked about that a little bit as well, I'd say weather has gone from a, you know, something we talked about in the beginnings of meeting to, uh, to, to warm up, to actually being a real risk in itself, right? There's Ezra's point around the weather's impact and what happens to, uh, to energy prices inflation. But if you look at the weather patterns, other places, right, there's a bunch of other things that impact uh, uh, you know the weather patterns and, and that and so that's become something that as I said used to be more of a of, of, a, of casual conversation that is actually a real a real factor. So what about you, Michael? What what are you hearing from your clients in terms of their top concerns? Sure, Sean. So um, I mean, one is I, I think uh, they're saying first of many of the things that Ida is also hearing. I work, as you introduced, with a number of clients who've been thinking about the energy transition, right? And that has been a a crucial part of their strategic context over the last few years. Um, And I would say it has, to some extent, it's been perhaps one step back, two steps forwards, right? So a sort of sense that, you know, right now, and again, you think Europe, but it's also true sort of globally, 
with respect to energy, it's kind of all of the above, right? So rather than everything we can possibly do to green, it's like do that, but also there is value and frankly imperative, societal imperative in some of the in 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 some of the brown. Right. So that sort of somewhat calibration of look long term, I expect the transition to be quite aggressive, but short to medium term, there are actually some things I might I might have moderated. So that's one thing I'm seeing is the sort of the context that that has for the energy transition. Great. Thank you, Michael. So the way we like to approach uncertainty at McKinsey is through scenarios. And we did that in analyzing the impact of COVID-19. We created a three by three grid on the severity of the pandemic and robustness of the response. And you did that here when looking at this period of volatility. Ezra, can you take us through this sort of three by three matrix? So that, sorry for the inside baseball two by two versus three by three uh, language, but effectively, this is a way of us asking the question in a simple way of, are we, are we getting back to a period of uncertainty that's more like pre-pandemic uh, where we have a good sense of what the range of outcomes would be and therefore planning and budgeting and all this kind of stuff becomes simpler again? Or are we in a world where we have this wider range of uncertainties? Uh, and we think this is an important question to ask because if you look at uh, prognosticators and institutions that do forecasts across the world, and if you look across countries, the range of GDP outcomes is really just not that wide kind of going forward. Now, that may, may turn out to be correct. Uh, but it, but it's also true, at least in our view, that there are still risks out there that need to be taken into account, as as Ida and Michael have been discussing. And this is not to say that there's panic or anything like that that's needed. It's to say that there are real risks that you have to assess relative to what your plans are and whether or not that's going to cause you to change your decision. That depends on the magnitude of the risk and then also your risk appetite. Um, it's, it's also important to change as we talk to, to point out as we talk about scenarios that many companies can get paralyzed by thinking about scenarios because there's the sense they have to change everything. We don't have to change everything. 70, 80% of the things that you will do as a company will remain the same regardless of the scenario. It's identifying those really big factors that matter. And so when we think about what could drive the scenarios, uh, Michael, you have articulated what the vertical axis, this is all the geopolitical risk, it's the energy balance and all of these kinds of issues that are out there that are kind of longer term. We all contribute to them, but no one really controls them. It took 20 years after the 1970s for the geopolitical and other environment to calm down. And if you think about the other drivers on the horizontal, and it's not just monetary policy and those things, it's also how governments create the right incentives to do the energy transition that Michael was just talking about. Uh, that could be done in a good way and, in, and actually help us move uh, to the right place, or it can be done in an uh, uncoordinated uh, and halfway and really would create some, some headwinds for us. So that matrix of uncertainty is really what kind of brings us all together. Thanks, Ezra. I realize that this is hard to describe uh, on a podcast, so I encourage our listeners to check out the article I mentioned at the beginning and that we've also shared in the show notes that lays out the three-by-three three matrix of scenarios in detail. Before we get deeper into the individual scenarios, do you generally see business leaders leaning towards the view that we will return to the pre-pandemic level of complexity, or are they anticipating a continuation of the high volatility that COVID-19 first introduced into the business environment and that we continue to see today? Ida, do you want to take that one? 
great conversation topic. I do think what we are hearing is this appreciation that we got to think about a much broader set of potential outcomes. And so one of the things we talk to clients about a lot is forecasts do not really work, right? Scenarios work. And so to Esther's point, not to, not to say we don't know what's going to happen, but just to say we got to be prepared and we got to think through these different outcomes. And then, of course, imagine you think about the risk profile for any one company. It really means there's a lot of volatility in, in the things that you should prepare for. So the fundamental idea that there's just much more uncertainty and complexity in navigating the environment, I think, is, is, is felt very, very broadly. Michael, do you see any variation among regions in the business sentiment on volatility and its impact? So uh, a, a few thoughts, Sean. I mean, one is obviously you know, while the energy challenge has moderated, it's still there. And so energy intensive businesses in Europe right, have to wrestle with that, right? Can I be more energy efficient? What might long-term you know, energy costs look like in different, in different geographies? So th- that's sort of one lens. Second lens, and, and, and we've put some research out as the McKinsey Global Institute, of course, is the, the technology side of things, right? And one of the um, challenges and opportunities Europe faces is that many of the transversal technologies that have powered productivity have been less developed in Europe, right? It used to, it used to be that more of them were developed in Europe, and now uh, in the recent era, it's been fewer, although some of the life sciences uh, technologies, for example, is still very much there. But that sort of is a, is a second theme that I think all of us as Europeans wrestle with. The third is, of course, the geopolitics side of things that Ida talked about, which, if you like, has advantages and disadvantages. Many of the European chief execs I talk to are hoping that they won't be forced to choose right, between other blocks and question how sort of realistic that is, right? But equally, as we see industrial policy strengthen in parts of the world, right, Europeans will talk a lot about the Inflation Reduction uh, Act in the US, for example, it, how is Europe thinking about that? So that would be sort of the, the, the third lens, right? So those would be my three, energy, technology, geopolitics. On your point about geopolitics, Michael, do you think there are any underestimated risks currently beyond the war in Ukraine and tensions in U.S.-China relations that business leaders really need to be considering? I mean, I'll offer a quick thought, uh, Sean, right, which is we did some uh, research at the Global Institute on global flows, and essentially 40% of world trade, if you look at, let's say, 6,000 products, is concentrated. All right, so it comes from a relatively uh, small number of, uh, of of countries, right? 30 percentage points of that is economy-specific choices. 10 percentage points of that is just it's globally concentrated, right? So actually, if you look at these sort of pinch points in the supply chains, there are many more um, for many companies than just the, you know, the very obvious, right? Which gets to, of course, some of the work that I, Ida does with her clients, right? For example, on supply chain risk. And just to build on that quickly, the the question about decoupling again, right? And decoupling and, and a lot of businesses say, oh, decoupling, that's this massive geopolitical issue. And like, I'm just going to kind of, the eyes roll over and kind of move on because nothing I can do about it. But based on what Michael just said, it's really important to remember that decoupling doesn't happen at the global level. That's, that is a, a story that's in the press. We're not going to split up into this world of two halves and all these kinds of things. 
But there is real, real tension and issues at the micro industry level. And so you have to think about not only those pinch points that Michael's talking about, but the fact that people are looking at those pinch points and saying, hey, you know, we have other kind of geoeconomic, not necessarily pure economic concerns about some of these flows, uh, which could impose regulations and as we've seen with chips and other things. So when we think about the, the, the decoupling question, to do that in the context of what Michael is saying at the micro industry level, and every, every company needs to look at that from their supply chain. Thank you both. Ida, anything you'd like to add there? Yeah, no, sure. I, look, I think the supply chain one is, 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 is a huge one. And, and to Michael's point, there's, there's some things that have been focused on. There's a lot of other risks kind of embedded in that and, and, and how the flows goes. I Things I also look at is, um, degree of protectionism from from not just the US and China, but about what we see in the EU, obviously from other from other countries. I look at concentrations in general, right? Where do we have large concentrations of human capital? Where do we have large concentration of manufacturing facilities? How does that intersect with uh, natural disasters, potential for local conflicts, all of those things, right? So I think we have the big trends and then a lot of of, of, of little spots. And so what I see company doing right is is kind of rethinking those concentration risks geographically in a, in a very different way and and even even if you can't fully say we think this conflict would happen whatever just the mere fact if you have a concentration you know companies is learning that that you know that that in itself is is, is really um a, a potential liability right and 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 a, and a rethinking a bit how do we how do we get more diversification in all the key aspects of of how we on how we produce and, and, and deliver our, you know, our products and services. Ezra, let's get back to that analysis discussion on, on the GDP growth picture and what it is under the different scenarios. Great. Just to continue with the theme of, uh, of, of where we headed, um, you know, we've talked about potential ranges as, you know, if you're, let's just say, if you're in the two by two world, uh, both in Europe and the U S you're somewhere between flat growth and, and something positive in 2023. Uh, and you're not really open to the idea uh, that there still is a possibility of a recession, uh, which we think is, is still on the table. But beyond just the specific numbers, I, I just when I look at these scenarios, I like to ask two questions. The first question is the one that we've been talking about, which is addressing the tactical concerns in the in the, in the near term. The strategic question there for companies is: Will you actually change? what you're doing and what your strategy is depending on what those levels of growth would be. Now, I know that better growth is going to go as per profit. This is not the question. The question is whether or not stronger growth is really going to change the competitive atmosphere in your industry, whether whether you're going to have new entrants, whether new innovations and products are going to be necessary, or whether the structure of the industry is maybe a little bit resistant to the level of growth and it's really a question of profits. Knowing the answer to that question is really important because it brings then forward what you might need to do today from a strategic perspective. And that's another good reason to do scenarios. Uh, I actually, what I like to say is that the the riskiest bet right now is to assume we go back to pre-COVID trend growth, right? Because after everything we've been through, like, you know, I mean, it seems highly unlikely to me, but, um, you know, that that's where all, if you look at the economic models, that's where they all go because that's what they're all built on where my own personal view is, I think both the US uh, and Europe are, are flat and probably a recession 
uh, in, in the next year. I, I want to emphasize that this is not COVID. This is not the financial crisis. That doesn't mean it's going to be any fun. It just means that it's going to be what we consider a, a normal kind of recession that we can work our way through. And it's and it's, and it's our ability to plan through that uh, is, is actually going to be quite effective. So what impact would that recession scenario have on inflation, Ezra? I was with a, a group of portfolio companies with one of the private equity firms that I serve in. And this is when the uh, the energy prices just turned around and everybody's like, oh, thank God, inflation started coming down. And I asked the simple question, well, well, how long did it take you to uh, pass along the pricing, the, the cost increases that you that you experienced at the beginning of COVID? They were like, oh, six to nine months, sometimes 12. Well, I mean, the same happens in the unwinding, right? It just doesn't, it just doesn't happen that quickly. Right, so we're looking at elevated levels of inflation. We can debate: is it three or four percent, or whatever it happens to be? Uh, but it's not going to. It's not something that's going to snap back in 2023. Probably not 2024. Um, and then, as far as the the central banks are concerned, uh, listen, the the markets for some reason still believe that uh, the Bank of England, European Central Bank, the Federal Reserve are all going to cut interest rates in the second half of this year, that we're going to see the light and everything's going to be rosy. Um, despite the fact that all of the central banks are saying, hey, guys, we're not going to cut interest rates in the second half of the year. So, you know, we have this saying in the United States, which is called don't bend against the Fed. Uh, and the reason is because they print the money. It's pretty much a losing proposition to, to bet against them. And so uh, right now, I think the good news is that we're likely to see peak rates and, and uncertainty will be removed on how high they're going to go. But we need to remember that they're going to stay with us for some time because the banks are not going to back are not going to back off until they see inflation coming under control the way that they actually really believe. Ezra, thanks again for sharing this macroeconomic picture with us. Now let's turn to what business leaders can do about it. Michael, given these different scenarios that Ezra's taken us through. How should companies prepare and what are some of the steps they should take? There is a huge value in resilient growth in this context. Firstly, um, as, as Ida opened with, the return on resilience uh, is going up. Right, The return on resilience is going up and it is a muscle that can be developed. There are dimensions of it one can train to become uh, more uh, resilient. Secondly, the return on courage. Uh, is going up. And at least in, the, in some of my uh, clients and what I uh, see is that uncertainty creates two types of response, right? One response is the wait and see, right? Sit back. The other response is essentially act and adjust, right? I see the gap. I'm going to move forwards. Many of the disruptive trends that we talked about and have been with us aren't going away, right? No, the energy transition isn't going away. Uh, sustain uh, the digital revolution, which has been going. If you talk to, we just saw Chat GPT as the most recent example. Um, if you talk, obviously, many folks on this are digital folks. But if you if you talk to digital folks, they will say you ain't seen nothing yet. And then finally, the people side of things, right? That while it has been a tough period of time and a volatile period of time for businesses. Ultimately, businesses are made up of individuals. Um, and I think, you know, we all have experienced a variety of different tough times. But I think that many uh, employees, frontline employees, um, have experienced a really, really tough time. And Ezra, to your point, right, often people can't find the talent that they know they need to navigate this. And so retaining um, 
the right talent we have, figuring out how to work in that more modern way that cherishes that talent, I think is going to be another place um, that's a real priority for business leaders in this in this era. So, Ida, how are companies approaching these priorities and what are some of the concrete steps that you're seeing them take? Let me start with the last one, maybe, right? We see a lot of companies really spending some time thinking about the talent strategy. So that's the employee experience, but it's also saying and, and, and linking to this point of resiliency and, and organizational resiliency is saying, how do we create a workforce? Well, first of all, we are much more agile, much faster at identifying talent, not as, you know, performance and role that's played out. It's, you know, not survival of the fittest, but saying, how do we catch the aspects of leadership qualities that we really care about at all levels of the, of the organization? identify that, think about the upskilling, the support, the mentorship and sponsorship that those folks need to create, you know, the core of, of not just who we are now, but the future leaders of the firm. So think about that in a, in a different way, much less focused on titles and much more focused on qualifications and leadership traits of, 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 of those people. And then also related to that, then therefore thinking, and, and Michael started talking about this, what is our value proposition, right? How do we retain? And a lot of companies clearly uh, need to go through the, the process of saying, look, compensation is is necessary, but not sufficient, right? So keep, to, to keep your workforce motivated. And increasingly, we'd say uh, the most thoughtful companies really understand, and we have research that shows that, you know, that compensation is only a part of, of what makes uh, people to, uh, choose to stay in a job. So what are all of these other things? What is the career trajectory you're offering, both directly but also in terms of upskilling? What are the, all the, the experience and, 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 and that that you create? And so that, I think, is, is, is a real shift that we're seeing and one that enables a lot of the, you know, the growth strategies and the strategic moves because we need, we, we need the right people to execute on all, on all of those ideas. Let's talk a little bit more just about the term resilience for a moment. What does resilience actually mean in this context and how does a company get from where they are now to being truly resilient. Yeah, no, we're excited about this, right? So, so of course, as we talked about, on one hand, we're saying what we're living through is different, right? We, we haven't, none of us have lived through this, but still, we believe there's some real interesting learnings and takeaways from 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 uh, from studying the past. And so, we've done some work looking at both. We looked at the financial crisis, we looked at COVID, and we've done um, analysis of companies over time. Looked at what are the things that differentiates the folks. The companies that did well during these difficult times are the ones that did less well. And we found a, a number of things that we find incredibly interesting, right? One is um, the past, you know, before crisis, an incredibly poor predictor of, of the future, right? Meaning the companies that are kind of leading uh, go industries going into a, into a crisis or a period of turmoil, a uh, lot of disruption is, is happening, right? So if normally you see, um, uh, you know, 20% movement in any given year between the top of the bottom in the sector, in periods of turmoil, you might see as much as 60% change, right? In kind of the order of, of, of who's dominating a sector. And so we, we said, okay, so what is, what is really differentiating, right? What are the companies doing that are able to take advantage of when the world changes quite fast. One example of that, where we basically looked at a, a bunch of co companies and started them long longitudinally, starting at the beginning of the financial crisis, and then looked at the performance through the crisis, but maybe even more important, 
also afterwards to say, you know, to what extent is what we see sustainable uh, after that? And so what we saw is that the companies that made bold moves, right, and that made changes early on in the financial crisis, and here we call them resilience, uh, severely outperformed their peers. And uh, the kind of things we saw, right, is um, uh, both in terms of shoring up the balance sheet, but really also about making bold moves. So I'd almost uh, characterize the balance sheet showing up as, as kind of the foundation, right? So you, you need on the on the kind of uh, uh, defensive side, we see companies move, move fast to uh, reduce cost, um, uh, you know, really think about capital expenditures that are not giving the, the right payoff and, and, and doing divestitures, uh, decreasing areas that are not giving the return. But most importantly, what we saw is companies that stopped there, right? So if companies said, let's just, you know, tighten that old belt and, and hope for the best, that in itself actually didn't create a lot of upside. What was important is the companies that took those austerity measures and then used what they created from that to make strategic investments, right? And we saw three types of investments. Could be capital expenditure, right? So investing disproportionately in areas of new business, of areas of growth. We saw increased activity around M&A, right? And so folks moving quite uh, quite aggressively. That can both be in terms of shoring up um, you know, market space. Sometimes it can be a, a move to show up talent, right? And make kind of a talent acquisition. And then last, and maybe this is the one that surprised us the most, that we also saw some uptick in, in a subsegment, a subset of the expenses. So for instance, we saw examples of, of companies that would make very uh, aggressive moves in marketing and really see, hey, here's a chance for us to, to disrupt the market, the market in terms of our position and, and, and make some moves there, right? So, so, and so when we talk about um, taking advantage of, of these times, right, this is the stuff we're talking about. Thanks, Ida. So resilience is not just moving to a lower cost base, but it's also deploying those savings that you've generated in a way that positions you to accelerate beyond your competitors. So how do companies then strengthen their resilience in periods of uncertainty like the one we're in now? This links back to a point about the um, the scenarios and the scenario analysis that is, is needed. At the foundation of being able to make bold moves is really an, an, an ability to say, understanding what's happening in the world, right? So your 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 internal Ezra Greenberg, right, that can give you a sense of everything that's going on. But then most importantly, the ability to link that, right, and say, okay, so for each of Ezra's nine boxes, what would happen to us, to our company, if that's how things uh, work out? And the ability to do a lot of what-if analysis, right? If if this happens and if we make the following strategic moves, how does that impact our cash positions, our liquidity, and all of those things? So that fundamental uh, muscle of saying how how can we how can we test different things? And then what it really what it really uh, feeds, right, is this ability to say you know really investing in areas uh, where we can grow, right? So that could be the M&As, it could be in, you know, the capital expenditure to really invest in new business areas. It is uh, thinking about how to show up and strengthening the margins, right? Which is not just the defensive move on the cost side, but very much around pursuing revenues. And then very much, and this is what, what Michael uh, talked about, um, about the resilience mus muscle is about optionality, right? So when we live through tricky times um, and you don't know exactly what's going to come across around the corner, the ability to say we can move on the dime pretty 
pretty quickly, both from a financial perspective, right? We keep some powder dry in terms of making investments if the right opportunities come around. In terms of people, as we talked about, right? We have a sufficient talent that can be redeployed and pursue new things that they come around. It's technological resilience and optionality, right? If we have an, an outage on issue in one area, our ability to move beyond that. And so you, you, you think about this, right, and really see um, um, these common characteristics of companies that did well. And I think one of the things that was so fascinating to us as we did the research is that we saw very, very similar patterns across sectors. This notion of making bold moves, strategic investments, and moving quickly, and, and, and therefore taking advantage of, 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 uh, of the hard times, that that impact we saw very, very consistently across sectors, which we thought was incredibly interesting. Awesome. Thanks, Ida. So how do you go about building this resilience muscle within your organization? We like to talk about three elements of resilience, right? Foresight, response, and adaptation. And so the foresight is what we talked a little bit about already, which is the notion of saying, how do you really get a deep understanding of the different scenarios and what it means for you? And how do you get that that ability to play out and, and, and understand, or given certain assumptions, how will you fare? The response part is where a lot of companies focus, right? That is the more short to near term of saying, okay, what are the austerity measures we need to make? What are the short-term uh, investments we need to make? And it's a little bit like, how do we stop the bleeding when something is happening? Incredibly important. What I think we would say that doesn't happen enough or what, where we see a real differentiation between the greatest companies and the laggards is in the adaptation, right? It is making sure that there's enough leadership and board time and, and mindset thinking about not just how do we react, how, not just how the defensive aspects, but what are really the offensive rate opportunities that this environment um, allows us to do, right? So that has that is going for some of the big strategic bets, but it also means this ability to build in the flexibility in, into into who you are as as a company. How do you create a more a faster moving agile organization? How do you create a leadership a leadership process where you can make fast decisions? Right. So what we see companies doing now is saying, look, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we can create a, a set of different types of events that could happen that will require us to move. And let's agree on the decision makers, the parameters for decisions, and how we're going to go about such that we have some version of a playbook that we can pull out and guide us when the world create, when the, when the world moves uh, very, very quickly. Got it. Oh, so last question making investments or acquisitions in uncertain economic times can potentially be viewed as risky and, and might even elicit a negative reaction from investors or other stakeholders, especially in the shorter term. So how do companies address that? So you, you see with some of, some of the layoffs that have happened recently that they, they, uh, I'd say the best companies don't just say, hey, this is what happened, right? There's actually a lot of qualitative contextualization around that, that explains why that's being done, how that feeds into the strategy, how that's going to be used. And so I think companies are increasingly understanding that you really need to play the short game and the long game, right? And make sure that you, when you, when you talk to the analyst community, that you are signaling very, very clearly how this is going to play out, not just not for, for the next quarter. And a lot of thinking goes into that as, as we believe should. 
the only thing I would I would add, uh, either and just it's an amplification. Um, and, and talking to some of my CEO clients recently in fall of volatility in the stock market, there is just a realization that there's some things you can control, there's some things you can't control. So staying on messages is what you're saying. You just not getting distracted by today somebody took a position on your on your stock and that's the way it is and you can't control that. Um, it takes a lot of uh, it takes a lot of you know nerve and, and 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 stability, but it's really important not to not to be reacting to the things that you really can't control. Yeah, courage, as Michael mentioned before, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I was I was going to say, Sean, I, firstly, look, obviously, in the current era, short to medium-term performance, right, counts for quite a bit in the overall enterprise, you know, value of a company, right? It's, it's you know, in uh, lower interest rate environments, the terminal value may, uh, you know, may feel differently to in, in higher interest rate environments. So that's just sort of one, I do think, the context of change. The second is this point about courage, right? Which is, honestly, I think um, you know, sometimes one has to pick one's battles, but do something that you know you know will probably pay off in the long term, right? and then enjoy the great rewards. I mean, by the way, we talk a lot about um, uh, CEO transitions and CEO excellence. That for me is also why, if one is a new chief executive, one should move quickly, right? Because yeah, you know, many of these things that pay off in the long term, it would be nice to move quickly. Someone says you don't necessarily know what you're doing, but you know, you're brand new, right? And then uh, you're still in tenure when it turns out you really did know what you were doing, right? And you get celebrated. So for me, I would in particular say that new leaders should move far and fast, not least because it takes some time for these medium term uh, investments and actions to pay off. So before we finish our podcast, I was hoping that each of you could share just a few thoughts on what you're most excited about in terms of next steps from your article. Ida, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll stay on the same theme, right? Which is, I am incredibly excited about seeing the increasing number of companies that are talking about building in resilience, right? Um, and the changes they're making. And, and it is really an area where it it has multiple benefits, right? It creates at the same time greater strategic flexibility, greater financial flexibility, but also a much more interesting value proposition for the employees, right? And so working with, with our clients on that is something that excites me tremendously. I'm, I'm very uh, hopeful that, that everything that we've been through, many of us and our clients are now uh, facing this uncertainty as a day-to-day uh, thing that we have to deal with, and it's no longer credit call, a special meeting. You know, we have to do all these different things. That all of the things that we've been talking about today are being integrated into our normal strategic planning and business processes. We'd all be way better off if we can continue to do that. And Michael, you get the last word. Well, Sean, I'm I'm actually uh, pretty optimistic I, because I think it will be an era of innovation. Ida, Ezra, Michael, thank you again so much for taking the time with us today. As I mentioned before, we hope you find that the article that Michael, Ida, and Ezra co-authored titled 2023, A Testing Year, is also helpful in understanding these scenarios. We've included a link in the show notes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at inside the strategy room at mckinsey.com or share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player. With many thanks to all our listeners who've already reached out and rated and reviewed the podcast. We really appreciate your comments and feedback. Please keep them coming. 
If you'd like to listen to additional episodes, we encourage you to follow our series on your favorite podcast player, where you can access our entire library of more than 150 previous episodes. You can also visit our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where, which um, you can also visit our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also find written transcripts of more than 120 of our past episodes. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights on strategy and corporate finance, you can sign up on our practice page at mckinsey.com slash SCF. Follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.